Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaiva Narotamam Devim Saraswatim Vyasam Tato Jayam Mudirayet Nasta Prayastu Badreshu Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya Bhagavati Uttamashloke Bhaktir Bhavati Naishtaki Hare Krishna. Humble to be in front of you all. Um, my experience is that Krishna is not so concerned with my preaching, but more with my purification. So I've been asked to speak this morning, but I know it's for my own benefit. So please forgive if I speak anything which is inconsistent. Hopefully we can talk something about um, the role of youth in our culture and Krishna consciousness. Um, that's why I had the, the privilege to come here this weekend to help Manaram Prabhu. Um, and Mother Ananda Vrindavan organized something. Manaram Prabhu? <coughs> organized something for um, the local youth, and it's wonderful. We also have devotees from Harrisburg and Delaware who've come to um, become enthused and also speak practically about how to create regular youth sanghas in our temple communities not only in these few places, but hopefully as a template, what we do this year in a few locations, including Chicago, D.C., New Jersey, maybe Texas, um, potentially one or two places out west. Hopefully those um, places, their programs, and the momentum that they create can serve as a template for the other congregations across at least North America, because right now there really isn't much going on for the youth on a regular basis, um, especially at the local level. And my name is Deva Madhava Das. <laughs> um, I, I met the devotees in Detroit, Michigan in 2010. And I um, was kicked out of the temple. <laughs> asked to go... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I was, I was asked to go a few minutes down the street. <laughs> I was asked to, to go a few minutes down the street and... Um, tried to do some preaching in a, a more of a college area where there were more young people, um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's where um, I've been ever since. We started a, a kind of what turned into a community center. It began as a preaching center and turned into a, a community center we called the Harmony Collective in a town right next to Ann Arbor, Michigan um, called Ypsilanti, which is kind of like the Brooklyn of Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is like Manhattan and we're kind of in the Brooklyn area. So all of the young, hip, artistic folks live in Ipsy because it's cheaper, and there's not as many Starbucks. So we like to, um, we like to have small, intimate gatherings and um, keep the focus on relationships, and that's, that's what youth appreciate. We had a wonderful gathering yesterday with about 30, 25 youth, and the reflection at the end was everybody really appreciated the opportunity to connect with one another. Nobody really remembered what we talked about or why we talked about it, but you could really see genuinely that they enjoyed spending time with each other, getting to laugh, getting to connect, getting to share something that's on their heart. And um, so that's, that's what we're trying to learn to focus on at our center there in the Harmony Collective. 
Um, I wanted to speak today from First Canto, fourth chapter, text six. And um, for the sake of time, I think we should end around eight thirty. Is it? Generally, okay. So for the sake for the sake of time, we'll we'll chant the Sanskrit and go straight to the translation, if that's okay with all the assembled devotees. Okay. <clears throat> Katamalakshita paurai Sampramta kuru jangalan Unmata muka jadavad Vicharan ghaja savaye Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada how is he, Srila Shukadev, the son of Vyas, recognized by the citizens when he entered the city of Hastinapur, now Delhi, after wandering in the provinces of Kuru and Jangala, appearing like a madman, dumb and retarded? Purport. The present city of Delhi was formerly known as Hastinapur because it was first established by King Hasti. Goswami Shukadev, after leaving his paternal home, was roaming like a madman, and therefore it was very difficult for the citizens to recognize him in his exalted position. A sage is not, therefore, recognized by sight, but by hearing. One should approach a sadhu or great sage not to see, but to hear him. If one is not prepared to hear the words of a sadhu, there is no profit. Shukadev Goswami was a sadhu who could speak on the transcendental activities of the Lord. He did not satisfy the whims of ordinary citizens. He was recognized when he spoke on the subject of Bhagavatam, and he never attempted jugglery like a magician. Outwardly, he appeared to be a retarded, dumb madman, but, in fact, he was the most elevated, transcendental personality. The Bhagavatam is our seminal text, right? It's the Amala Purana. There's 18 principal Puranas, six that are designed, edited, you could say, for those in the mode of ignorance, six that are edited to appeal to those in the mode of passion, six that are edited to appeal to those in the mode of goodness, and then amongst those that are in the mode of goodness, this Bhagavat Purana is for the pure transcendentalist. It's spotless. And it's the seminal text that all of our acharyas point to when they're creating praman for our culture, when they're establishing how we behave, why we behave, what we do, when we do it, where we do it, and most importantly, why we do it. Our entire Krishna conscious society is founded around the precepts and the pastimes of the Bhagavatam. When we read Lord Chaitanya's pastimes in Chaitanya Charitamrita, there's only three things going on. They're taking a lot of prasadam, Right? As it said, Lord Chaitanya is not accustomed to taking small amounts of prasadam. So they're taking lots of prasadam, they're doing lots of kirtan, and they're hearing Bhagavatam. All their association is based around Bhagavakata. That's what they're doing. They're hearing Bhagavatam from each other, they're doing kirtan, and they're taking lots of prasadam. That's Chaitanya Charitamrita. So this Bhagavatam is foundational. It's, we don't have a Krishna conscious society without the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's often an overlooked point, though. Who is the speaker of the Srimad Bhagavatam? We say Shukadev Goswami, and his name is up there in the canon of great sages, right? And the other great sages are Vyasadev and Narad and 
six Goswamis and Lord Chaitanya and the rest of the Panchatattva and Srila Prabhupada and Bhakti Siddhanta. And all of those personalities, are, of course, are wonderful, fantastic, and, and many of them were in the audience when Shukadeva was speaking the Bhagavatam. But we often overlook Shukadeva himself and his, his character, his nature, his persona. Shukadeva was an uninitiated, naked, 16-year-old with dreadlocks. <laughs> uninitiated, naked, 16-year-old with dreadlocks spoke the Srimad Bhagavatam. It was a 16-year-old. Yes. Actually, he had heard Srimad Bhagavatam, so he was speaking as is. Just like Prahlad Maharaj can be said uninitiated. Yes, you're taking exception with the idea that he's uninitiated. No, yeah. So that's <laughs> an, that is, I'm kind of like almost feeling that that can be challenged because he was initiated by his father when he was in the womb of his mother. Sure. Just like Prahlad Maharaj was initiated and accepted Narad Muni to be his spiritual master. Do you uh, accept any of these children as initiated yet? If they had uh, accepted a spiritual master and the spiritual master has imparted the knowledge to them, then they would be initiated. I do not know. I did not stay with them for what, all their life. In our society, what do we require before we accept that someone is initiated? Well, we need to change 16 rounds, at least for six months, as is given in the GBC you know, mm -hmm. regulations. And uh, aspire for a spiritual master, express to the spiritual master, and the spiritual master accepts and properly initiates us into Harinam. That's the first initiation. Yes. And then continue to engage in devotional service, you know, Bhajan Kriya. Yes. And uh, then come to the point of stage of being a Brahman and get, get second initiation, which is Brahman initiation. Uh huh. Brahman Diksha, Gayatri. Brahman Diksha, yes. Sitting in front of the fire. Yes. Yes. Right. None of those things Shukadev did. Again. Everything that Shukadev did, which was here from his father, Bhagavat Kata, is what the youth of our movement have done. Gorkishodas Babaji also did not get initiated. Sorry? Gorkishore Das Babaji. Gorkishore. Hmm. He was actually, he had Shiksha Guru. Bhaktivinoda yeah. Thakur was his Shiksha Guru. Yes. So following the Parampara, he is one of our Acharyas. Of course. And uh, so would you say he was uninitiated Acharya? Of course not. Okay. So you give the answer. Thank you. Yes. My point in calling Shukadev uninitiated, and I'm glad that it triggered something inside of you, is that of course he wasn't uninitiated in the true sense. And yet in the formal sense, in the institutional sense, he was uninitiated. Especially by our ISKCON standards of what means initiation. And it's not to say that those standards aren't helpful for certain things. But when we limit the possibility of the devotional service that someone can perform based on these external considerations, then we're actually, as Bhaktisiddhanta says, we're trying to arrest the natural flow of pure love coming down from the spiritual strata by the dikes and dams. Who knows what a dike or a dam is? That's right. You try to control a river using dikes and dams, using these pieces of infrastructure. <clears throat> so, with the dikes and dams of institutional consideration, we try to arrest the natural flow 
of spiritual power that's coming from the higher strata. And this is our natural tendency. And right now in our own society, we see that our children are being arrested in their development by these kind of external considerations of what they can and cannot do, what they should and should not do, what they ought and ought not do, which is largely based on these external considerations. For you guys that just walked in, what we're discussing is the Srimad Bhagavatam and particularly the speaker. Who spoke the Srimad Bhagavatam? And how old was Shukadeva Goswami? Let's let the youth answer, if they can. How old was Shukadeva Goswami? Eh, 16. How many clothes was Shukadeva Goswami wearing? <laughs> How many dhotis? So we're making the point that Shukadeva Goswami, from the outside, from the external situation, it looked like Shukadeva Goswami was not a very qualified person to be speaking to anybody in any sane way. In fact, the text reads, we'll read it again now that we've had a few more devotees join us. How is he, Srila Shukadev, the son of Vyas, recognized by the citizens when he entered the city of Hastinapur, now Delhi, after wandering in the provinces of Kuru and Jangala, appearing like a madman, dumb and retarded? So a madman, would we even trust the madman to tell us what time it is? Would we trust the madman to tell us how to get to the grocery store? No, we wouldn't trust the madman with anything. And yet here's a, somebody who appears to be a madman sitting on the Vyasa sun in front of Nard Muni, Vyasadev, Markandeya Rishi, and many other qualified sages and speaking Bhagavat Kata, Srimad Bhagavatam, for seven days straight. And he looks crazy. And he's only how old? Sixteen. How old are you, Prabhu? Fourteen. Two more years. <laughs> At only sixteen years old, this devotee who's externally seemingly very unqualified gave us the scripture, the Srimad Bhagavatam, that we now hold as the foundational understanding for the philosophical and behavioral framework of our entire Krishna conscious society. At sixteen years old. How old are you guys? Almost. Next year. <laughs> 21. Past his prime. <laughs> 14. Shukadev Goswami. We often think of him up there with the great sages as he should be thought of. But we forget this detail. And in Krishna consciousness we understand nothing is coincidental. Nothing is coincidence. Everything is consequence. A consequence ultimately of Krishna's desire and the desire of his devotees. So we shouldn't think it an arbitrary point that somebody seemingly unqualified, a young person who really has no business or standing in society as of yet and actually shows no interest also in having any business or standing in the normal course of the social framework is the one that was most qualified to speak to Parikshit Maharaj when he sat down on the bank of the Ganga. Oftentimes it's thought of as a disqualification that the youth seem disinterested in the normal course of ISKCON dealings. But if we read Prabhupada's other purports about the qualification of Shukadev, which are not here in this single, um, this one-third volume of the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, we hear that his disinterest in the normal course of society was actually one of his qualifications. Isn't it? 
he's walking by the bathing place of a few young girls and they're all there naked in the, the uh, pakor bathing. And they don't even notice or care that Shukadev has walked by. But when Vyasadev walks by, what do all the young girls do? They cover themselves. Let's let the youth answer if possible. That's yeah, okay. I'm, I appreciate your eagerness. Yes, all the young girls do what? They start covering themselves up. They start huddling together. They start worrying that there's a man walking by and here we are bathing naked. And Vyasadev said, hey, wait, my son just walked by. I saw it. And you didn't even give it a second glance. But when I'm coming by, you all huddle up and you all clothe yourself and suddenly you feel very embarrassed. Why is that? And what did the young girls answer? You guys know this section? One of the adults want to help them out? Well, actually, uh, because he was a grasta. And, uh, you know, and even though Vyasadeva was elevated, but it's still like as a uh, process in the society because, uh, you know, Vyasadeva... He was still established within the normal course of society, right? So Vyasadeva, we don't question his qualification. And yet because of his connection to the normal course of society... Yes, Prabhu. When Shukdev Goswami crossed, he did not make a distinction between men and women. He was carefree. Avadhuta is another term. That's right. See. While when Vyasadev crossed, he would make that distinction and they could immediately recognize that and immediately cover themselves. That's right. Vyasadev, because he was a part of the normal course as a grihasta, recognized these are young girls that are naked and I shouldn't be seeing them this way. Not that he had some sensual attachment for them, but that he recognized the impropriety of the situation, which then created the embarrassment in the young girls. So it was Shukadev's disconnection from the normal course of society that actually gave him his transcendental qualification. So again, oftentimes we see that the youth in general, and this is not a phenomenon exclusive to ISKCON, this is a phenomenon that's there in any society, ours included, that the youth are generally disinterested in the normal course of the way things are going. And it's such a consistent phenomenon that happens in nations, in organizations, in religious institutions like our own ISKCON. It's so pervasive and prevalent that we can only attribute that phenomenon to one person. Who's the ultimate cause of all causes? Krishna. This is how Krishna likes it. In the spiritual world, what's going on? How old is Krishna? Okay, we would say ageless, but actually in the Nitya Leelas, in, in the Vraj Leelas that are happening in Vrindavan constantly and always, Krishna is an age. Mother Yashoda thinks that she has a son, and she thinks that that son is how old? Do you know? Who knows? How old is God? <laughs> how old is Krishna? 16. Actually, 16 and one-fourth. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit over 16. And how old is Srimati Radharani? 13? Little over 13. Yes. So, who's heard the name for Radha and Krishna? Kishore Kishori. We have beautiful deities in Iskan, Chicago, Sri Kishore Kishori. Very appropriately, that's where the, the first of these youth seminars happened. 
was under the blessings and auspice of Sri Kishore Kishori, the eternally youthful couple who's heard the term sweet 16, right? Sweet 16. This concept is there even in American culture. It's recognized that this is the sweetest age, the best time to be alive. In, in Spanish or Latin American culture, there's something called quinceañera. Yeah, that's at 15, exactly. Quinceañera. When the girl turns 15, that's when you have the huge party for her. You bring the whole village to come see her beauty, to come see her luster, to come see her charm. Because it's at that age that all those things will peak. And from there, it's downhill. <laughs> Ask any of us on the other side of 16. <laughs> and we can tell you that all of your opulence in terms of your physical, emotional, it starts to decline a little bit. You don't look as nice. You're not as vigorous. Things aren't as enjoyable anymore. Things don't taste as sweet. Things don't sound as nice. It's just, that's also the way Krishna has designed it in this material world. But Radha and Krishna, they don't ever have to get old. And they don't ever have to be too young to have fun either. They are eternally existing as this sweet 16 couple, Kishore Kishori. And it's the sweetness of those pastimes that they enjoy together, the sweetness of those loving exchanges that they have with each other that allows for the entire spiritual world to exist. The service of every other devotee in the spiritual world is actually wrapped up and connected to ultimately the intensity of the loving exchange happening between the eternally youthful Nava Yovana divine couple, Sri Kishore Kishori. Sweet 16 forever. Taking it from the spiritual world and down to our own ISKCON movement. When Srila Prabhupada came in 1965, who did he first try to speak to in New York, in America? Not the hippies, no. Who did he first try to speak to? Indian. Well, he met the Agarwals. He was staying with the Agarwals in Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, he tried to do a few programs at the YMCA, etc. But he realized, this is small town, this is small time. My Gurumaraj wants something bigger, something grander. And Prabhupada, he admits, he always had a plan to go to New York. But when he first got to New York, who did Prabhupada connect with and, and attempt to preach with? Okay, yeah, he, of course he met some officials as he was entering into New York City. But when he's in New York City, he's, he's staying there now. But who is he staying with and who is he trying to preach to? Uh-huh. Not yet. That would come later, but that is definitely going to be my main point. <laughs> that it's the youth that Srila Prabhupada preaches to. But at first, he was hanging out with one of those uptown swamis. The uptown swamis, if you guys know the layout of New York especially back in 1965, Uptown was all the rich, wealthy people, all the established professionals. Yes, Dr. Mishra, who has his Ananda Ashram about an hour and a half north of New York City. And Dr. Mishra was one of these, as Allen Ginsberg would later say, one of these Uptown Swamis. And what was the preaching program of the Uptown Swamis, Mata?
Yeah, Prabhupada would say, in six months I can make you God. Just pay me a few hundred or a few thousand for this mantra, and in six months I can make you God. It was a very convenient presentation of philosophy. Don't change anything you're doing. Just come hear me speak once a week. Give me some dakshin, which is basically like a, an entry fee. And then go back to whatever it is you are or aren't doing. That was Dr. Mishra's program and the program of a few other swamis coming from India. They were, called, they were termed the Uptown Swamis by Allen Ginsberg, the famous poet who took a, a liking to Srila Prabhupada. And the point was, they weren't actually changing people's mind or hearts. They were just engaging people practically in what they were already doing and giving them the justification now of so-called spirituality as another means to gratify their senses. And this is very attractive if you're a New York City professional. Because if you're a New York City professional, how many years have you dedicated yourself to develop your practice, whatever it might have been? How hard did you have to work? to become established in New York City? How old must you have to be? And how hard is it for old people to change, no matter where they're situated, what to speak of if they're situated in the upper crust of the most important, material, materially important city on the planet? So the uptown swamis, including Dr. Mishra, weren't really asking people to change what they do, or how they do it, or why they do it. But our Srila Prabhupada was very interested in doing all of that. And so when he met Dr. Mishra, Dr. Mishra had some sympathy for Srila Prabhupada, seeing that he was this old Indian man with practically no resources, nothing to, <clears throat> to base himself from, nothing to protect him from the, the harsh elements of New York City. And so Dr. Mishra took care of Srila Prabhupada for a little while, and also Srila Prabhupada took care of Dr. Mishra. Dr. Mishra actually credited Srila Prabhupada later on with saving his life by feeding him Krishna Prashadam every day because Dr. Mishra was on his way out. He was pretty sick. So he ate from the hands of Srila Prabhupada every day for several months. But Srila Prabhupada would go to Dr. Mishra's yoga programs and he would try to work in a little preaching. Whatever Dr. Mishra would let him, because he said he didn't like it so much. <laughs> but Srila Prabhupada didn't and wasn't able to attract a single person from that whole Sangha in about three months of interacting with them on a weekly basis. Imagine, Srila Prabhupada was interacting with people for three months and not a single one of them wanted to become a follower of his. And so Srila Prabhupada understood this isn't the crowd. This isn't the people that I should be dealing with. This isn't where I should be investing my time. And then almost by accident, Krishna indicated to Srila Prabhupada actually who he should spend his time with and also why. That's when the hippies come in. Srila Prabhupada wound up down in the Bowery and he was just walking, just going to the grocery store. And two devotees, or soon to be devotees, saw him across the street and Prabhupada was in his saffron dhoti <laughs> and maybe he had his Prabhupada hat on, we don't know. <laughs> and they said, hey, I think that's a Swami. Do you see that guy over there? I think that's an Indian Swami. Maybe we should go over there and talk to him. Ask him what he's doing here. Because these were two people. Who knows which two devotees this? No, it wasn't Mukunda Prabhu. They'd gone to India. Yeah, the two brothers, right? 
Yes, Brahmananda Prabhu and yeah, I believe. Lilamrita tells, but I'm pretty sure it's Brahmananda Prabhu and I, um, Gargamuni Prabhu, yes. So they saw Prabhupada, they'd been to India and they, they went and they came back and they, they thought something would happen but nothing had happened yet. Nobody had touched them with a magic wand and made them enlightened. So they saw Prabhupada and they said, wow, this is far out. This guy looks really cool. This guy looks really different. This guy looks like something that we would get into. Because all the hippies were trying to break away from society. They saw that our parents, whatever they were doing, whatever they thought was cool, actually isn't cool. Our parents are miserable. Our parents are unhappy. So we shouldn't do what they're doing. We should try to do something else. But they didn't know exactly what that something else should or would be. So they're trying all kinds of stuff in all kinds of ways. And India kept popping up to everybody in the counterculture as a good idea. Some, it had something that we didn't have over here. But they didn't know exactly what that something was. And so they saw Prabhupada and they said, maybe he can help us understand what that something is. And they approached him, they began speaking, and then from there, here we are. How old were those devotees in the early days? Like the three Grihasta couples that went from San Francisco to London. Early 20s. How old were the devotees who took sannyas? 20s. <laughs> Jai Patakamaraj was 21 when he took sannyas. All of the prominent temples across our movement, still to this day, in 40 years since the departure of Srila Prabhupada, we haven't been able to come even close to the, the productivity of those 12 years when it was only a 70-year-old Indian man and a bunch of 20-somethings running all over the planet frantically trying to figure out how they can serve Krishna best. Who's heard of this book called Chasing Rhinos? Who wrote that book? Shamasundra Prabhu, right. And does anybody know the purport of what it means to chase a rhino? That's right. Beautiful. That's Srila Prabhupada's own purport to what it means to chase rhinos. Is that if you chase a rhino and you don't catch it, anyway it was an impossible task. <laughs> Nobody's going to blame you for not catching a rhino. However, if you do catch the rhino, then everyone will celebrate you as a hero. You'll get all the name and all the fame and all the credit. Whereas, as you pointed out, on the other side, if you do something average if you do something that everybody else is already doing and you don't do it exceptionally well, then you're a failure. Then you'll, be, you'll feel defeated. And even if you do do it exceptionally well, well, anyway, everyone is already doing that. So what's the big deal? So the special feature of youth is that they're very good at chasing rhinos. And why are youth very good at f chasing rhinos?
Usually enthusiastic, yeah. What do you mean by enthusiastic, Ma? That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. They are less conditioned than the mature public. Srila yeah. Prabhupada said this again, and we know from our experience that if you try to preach Krishna consciousness to someone who is a PhD or a master's, they have so many of their own ideas that you know, the, when the plate is full, that's right. or the cu cup is full, you cannot pour any more in it. That's Youth right. is like an empty cup, so when you pour the best in it, they accept it. Yes. <clears throat> the wonderful feature of youth is that they don't know that they're not supposed to do something. And Prabhu said condition. They don't have all these ideas about how the world works and why it works that way and how it has to be that way and how it, it can't be any other way except the way that it is because I've gone to school for eight years and I've spent $200,000 to, to know for certain that the way the world works is this way. That's called a PhD. <laughs> to be certain about how the world works. But that's actually a very boring place to live life from. And those old PhD guys are actually very envious of the young people underneath them who still have hopes and dreams and ideas of the world being a place of possibility where something unexpected could happen. Something wonderful and undiscovered. And that's the special feature of youth is that they live in that wonderful realm between imagination and rigid reality. They live in a place where it's possible that something wonderful could happen. What did Srila Prabhupada say about the word impossible? I am possible. Impossible is a word in a fool's dictionary. And the nice thing about youth is they never say this word. They just say it's interesting. <laughs> Which is another way of saying it might be possible. I might be able to do that. Our entire Krishna conscious culture is based around this dynamic of youth. Our Krishna conscious culture as we've experienced it. As followers of Srila Prabhupada, it was the naivety, the optimism, that sense of possibility in the youth that began to follow him in 1966 and beyond that gave us all of the resources, <clears throat> both the Shastra, the temples, the Sangha, etc. Literally all of the resources that we have now today to practice our own Krishna consciousness was given to us by the faith and enthusiasm of 20-somethings. And a few teenagers actually, like Vaisheshika Prabhu and Bhakti Vashramba Madhava Maharaj and several other devotees who joined at age 16, 17. Dravida Prabhu, actually quite a few devotees who joined age 16, age 17 and totally dedicated themselves immediately and began to change the world with that faith in Srila Prabhupada. Yes. One thing I also wanted to cover once again, you, I was hoping that you would cover, is basically when people see youth doing something, people mm -hmm. get enthused very easily. And uh, that has been given from the Shastras, like Hiranyakashipu, when he's specifying the, you know, widows of Hiranakshan, he's 
nephews and nieces at that time. At that time, he's preaching to them about a king who died on the battlefield, and Yamraj has to come to pacify everyone. And you know, and what age does he look like? He comes like a boy, eight-year-old boy, Brahmin ah, boy. Yes. And when he speaks, Shila Papa in the purple writes that when a young boy speaks, people get attracted. That's right. And you know, they get enthused. So, youth has not just an energy himself; they have a lot of radiance when they give that positivity out. People get attracted. Yes. And that's one of the reasons how Iskan actually flourished when Srila Prabhupada took this, uh, you know, his devotees, the young devotees, and he called them white elephants. Uh huh. Right? Dancing white elephants, Dancing yes. White yes, thank you for that point. It's a nice segue into the last part of what I wanted to <laughs> um, bring us back to, which is that, <clears throat> again, the spiritual world. The all-attractive pastimes of Shishi Radha and Krishna are all-attractive because they're the eternally youthful divine couple, not the eternal elderly divine couple. They're 16 years old forever because that's forever attractive, as Prabhu's pointing out. It's always compelling when a youth says something. It, it might not even be the right thing. It might be totally wrong, but still we'd rather listen to the young person saying it than the old person. When Lord Chaitanya sat and heard Srimad Bhagavatam from Gadadhar Pandit in Jagannath Puri after he ended his preaching pastimes. He spent his last 18 years in Jagannath Puri. He would sit and hear Bhagavatam from Gadadhar Pandit every day. And which two pastimes from the Srimad Bhagavatam did Lord Chaitanya want to hear about over and over and over again, a hundred times before he was willing to hear another pastime from the Bhagavatam? Which two pastimes from Bhagavatam did Lord Chaitanya want to hear over and over again? Dhruva Maharaj and Dhruva Charit and Prahlad Charit. The pastimes of two five-year-olds. <laughs> Here's Lord Chaitanya, the supremely intimate and intense expression of the divine couple in one form in Jagannath Puri, relishing the deepest internal sentiments of the mood of Radharani Krishna himself and what he wants to hear over and over again every day are the activities of two five-year-olds a hundred times Lord Chaitanya would listen to Dhruva Charit before he would allow Gadadhar Pandit to move on to another text so within our own community given that there's so much precedent for the importance of youth. From Shukadev Goswami, the naked 16-year-old who speaks the Srimad Bhagavatam, to Srila Prabhupada's early followers, who by their sincerity and dedication, as 20-somethings, were able to manifest all of the most wonderful elements of our society that we see today, from the printing of the Chaitanya Charitamrita in two months. Have you guys ever seen that? Chaitanya Charitamrita, right? Could you imagine producing those the entirety of that volume in two months' time in 1970 before laser printers and Chinese printing houses, sweatshops where your books can be printed in two hours. By hand, the devotees themselves using 
machines that they train themselves how to use, they produced the Chaitanya Charitamrita in two months. Previously, they thought it would take them two years. And when Srila Prabhupada told them, when, the, when Prabhupada said, I want it done in two months, and their reply was, that's impossible, that's when Prabhupada gave that quote, impossible is a word in a fool's dictionary. And being young and fools in a different way, the devotees were actually able to execute it. They had the faith to pull it off. Because as Prabhu pointed out, they weren't conditioned by this idea of what they can't do yet, of how the world is and how it has to be. They still had that sense of hope and possibility. So at every level, it's actually youth that drives the Krishna consciousness movement all the way up to Krishna himself, who's the eternally youthful 16-year-old. So if we really want to see our own ISKCON society revitalized again in that expressive, enthusiastic, compelling way that it presented itself from the years of 1966 to 1977 and a few years after, then the essential thing that we have to recognize is the need to engage the youth beyond simply teaching them Bhagavad Gita shlokas or letting them cook a Sunday feast, but actually opening ourselves up to what they want to do, how they want to do it, and why they want to do it, trusting that that is actually the divine plan of the Lord and his arrangement for the entire cosmos. That it's his desire as an eternally youthful person which moves and shakes everything beneath. And so it's the hearts and minds of our own youth who Krishna has sent, thank you, <laughs> if we truly believe that, into our homes, into our temples, into our communities. It's their mind and heart that will actually carry the message which will move and shake the world in the way that we know Srila Prabhupada wants it to. So I'll end there. And um, maybe we have a few minutes for any other comments or questions. So, picking up on one of the fears of the older generation, mm -hmm. if we hand over everything to the young people, they won't do it as well, or they won't do it to the high standards yeah. that we've currently built everything up to. So therefore, <laughs> we're hesitant. Yeah. <laughs> we're not handing it over, right? Uh -huh. So, what's your take on that? Well, yes, thank you. Um, things will, will either be handed over to youth or they will collapse to the youth. And the choice is in the hands of the leaders at present. Krishna has his arrangement and he has his way. Kalos me. Time will destroy the position. In one Bhagavatam purport, Prabhupada says, it's often the case that politicians have to have their positions ripped from their cold, dead fingers. And our devotees have to recognize that our positions within the society, our services within the society, are in one sense the same kind of political and temporary situation. They're not permanent uh, stations that the Lord will allow them to serve in forever. And so recognizing that, and recognizing that in fact, yes, the Lord has a desire for a natural succession to happen, 
our leaders right now have the opportunity to hand over services or to have them ripped from their cold dead fingers. <laughs> well, it's Prabhupada's words, not mine. And here, here are the, to, to extrapolate the two scenarios, right? To, to draw out what will go on. If we choose the ideal scenario where it's handed over, then there will be some mistakes made by the youth. There will be some slackening, some swinging of the pendulum to a side which we might consider outside the realm of good Krishna consciousness. That will happen. That will be part of it. There will also be some incredible revelations in the possibilities of what Krishna consciousness can mean to a modern society. Both will happen. The wonderful benefit of the youth having the opportunity to serve handed to them is that when those mistakes happen, when those fall downs occur, when those deviations go, there will be that presence of the wise and capable and reassuring Brahminical elderly generation to let the youth know, yeah, it's okay, I told you this would happen. And I did the same, actually much worse, thank you. <laughs> I, if the youth today tried to screw up the way the first generation did, they would have a hard time matching the standard. They would have a hard time. You guys would, it, you'd be hard pressed to make the same mistakes. So really, how much worse could it have been? And look at the qualifications of the youth compared to those who came in the early days, scraped off the streets of New York City or San Francisco. These, these children don't even know what the smell of meat is in some cases. What to speak of the, the experience of intoxication, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So really, how could they even make the same mistakes? So yes, some mistakes will be there, but how wonderful it is if there is that presence of the older generation to pat them on the back like grandma and grandpa does, right? It's okay, everyone makes mistakes, and if you can learn something from it, then it's actually not a mistake, it's a blessing, it's not a bad thing, it's a very wonderful thing. How nice, right? How reassuring for the youth, how much confidence that gives the youth to go out there and be brave and be bold because they know they're going to come back to a place where they'll be loved, cared for, and given um, proper reassurement. So that's the, the one side. That's the ideal scenario. I think we would all agree. The other side, when it's ripped from the cold dead fingers, what will happen then when the youth finally get a hold of the movement? They will have so much pent up anger and resentment for being suppressed for so long that not only will they make the same mistakes they would have made anyway, but they'll make a whole bunch of other mistakes out of anger and retribution also, out of a need to prove themselves, out of a need to finally have a voice and establish themselves above and beyond everyone else because they weren't given a healthy context to express themselves earlier. So out of retribution and anger and resentment, you'll have a whole bunch of other really nasty deviations that never would have taken place if the youth were given in a healthy way the opportunity to serve and express themselves by the leaders who have that capacity to hand over the reins. So do we want this disgruntled 15-year angsty teenager period of the movement? Or do we want this, this youthful opportunistic um, hopeful period of the movement that's the precipice that we stand on right now and it's it's like a we have about three years i'd say before things start getting nasty 
Yeah, thanks for your question, Prabhu. Yes, Ma, you. Guiding and giving them, giving the youth a space to speak. Yeah. And what are their concerns? Because I think it, part of it also falls on the parents. Mm, yes. That I think parents should definitely allow the kids to voice up their concerns. Mm -hmm. We had a very uh, recent experience in our temple five months ago, where you know two young youths, and they're both here at the <laughs> at this week's sangha, where they um, very nicely very respectfully told a, an adult parent, can you please take your child downstairs because it's making noise while they're recording a drama mm. and it turned into a fiasco. <laughs> parents are not, I feel some parents are not ready mm. to accept that the child has a voice. Yes. No matter what age they are at. And once we start blocking and stopping the child from speaking, yes. they will definitely go through a suppression stage. And when, and when we keep closing the cap on them, when they blow up, it's too late, it's going to be a Fiji. Terrible. And, and, and I think, you know, sometimes we just think, oh, they are too young. You know, they wait till they finish the college degree for them to speak up. Mm. Kids are nowadays are so smart. From the age of 10 or 11, they know. And I think it really boils on to the adults yes. to listen. Don't look at them as a child. They're grown. They have a voice and they know what... And if they say the child is making noise, it's the truth. And sometimes my dad would say the truth hurts because it's so bitter. But it is the truth. Yes. And I think it boils down to adults leaders, parents, you know, that allow them to speak. Thank you, Ma. That's a wonderful point. Yes. So I would like to, once again, just an extension to what you just said. So collective of a leader is, as Prabhupada has shown by his own example, is that they know how to bend the stick without snapping it. Right? They understand. So they are extreme. So the importance is to have a balance environment in which the kid can flourish, mm. right? Uh, let's take the example of uh, this, uh, one of the tree in the temple at Vrindavan died. I'm forgetting what kind of tree it is, but and people were saying, Tamal, okay. And people were giving different uh, speculation, this was the cause, that was the cause. And there was a person who actually knew the cause and he said, actually, we overwatered it. Mm. So sometimes parents are doing too much. You have to do this, you have to chant and this. And I can give you an example, like sometimes in Gurukula, there were some practices that people realized after 20 years was not a good practice. Time out to do Japa. Hmm. It became like a punishment. Then why would you be attracted to Japa? You wouldn't. So we have to be very conscious of every single activity that we do. We should do it with full consciousness what its effect going to be. And then sometimes you become... So again, Shukdev Goswami, he was carefree. He was not careless. Yes. He was given an environment that he could be carefree and fully absorbed in Krishna consciousness. And that's the environment we need to give to the youth. And that depends on the parents. And we know that mothers are the first guru, Mata Guru. Yeah. Prabhupada says in his purpose. And husband to the wife is Pati Guru. So 
there is a responsibility each one of us have. So it's not starts with someone else doing it. It starts with us doing it. Yes. And what is that which should be done is to parents first and, for, first and foremost have a deep relationship with Krishna themselves. It's from a feeling of insecurity and inadequacy that all of this suppressive and oppressive behavior comes. Because the parents aren't actually very Krishna conscious themselves. And so to feel like they are Krishna conscious, they need their child to look Krishna conscious. In the same way that some dad forces his kid to spend three hours on the basketball court because he didn't make it to the NBA. And so he needs his child to make it to the NBA so that he can feel like he's, his life is valuable and he was a good basketball player. So these parents who don't actually have much of a taste in Krishna consciousness need to make their kids look like they have a taste in Krishna consciousness. And their kids say, why do I want to do this thing that makes you miserable? It's quite mundane and material. And if we want to talk about how that problem can be addressed, it's from the top when leaders actually begin to challenge their followers again rather than just letting them maintain this kind of comfortable status quo for the sake of the material prosperity of the movement, actually challenging people on the level of, are you becoming Krishna conscious? Are you really putting yourself out there? Because you'll never be able to recognize how to help your child put themselves out there until you yourself learn how to put yourself out there. Before that, you'll, you won't understand the dynamic that it takes to create that supportive atmosphere where a person can simultaneously learn who they are as a person and learn who Krishna wants them to be. That actually entails a new thought. That again, when we say the word mandir, it wasn't. It wasn't a new thought. This no, 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 no. This is but the again, issue that the parents side, don't understand. That it reminded me of what I read. Shilapapal writing. Ah. It's again temple. We have so much focus on temple. We forget that every living entity has Lord residing in the heart, mm. and that's a temple of the Lord. How are we taking care of that temple? We are so much worried about the temple made of stones and all that and we call them transcendental but then the Lord resides in the body. That's right, yes. And it is part of the part and parcel of the Supreme Lord. So why we, you know, you know how we should be treating every person is very important. So again, youth is definitely very vulnerable and it's a great responsibility for all of us. And one of the examples that comes to my mind is where there was a disciple of Srila Prabhupada, he was in a managerial duty and he wrote to Srila Prabhupada that I should prepare my son to be in a managerial duty and Srila Prabhupada said, no, you are a devotee. <laughs> Tomorrow you may be called in for, you know, duty worship. And then next day you could be called in for Sankirtan. So you need to give that all around environment in yes. which the kids can flourish. Yes. Prabhu. One question I have, like the examples were given, um, like Brahlad Maharaj, Dhruv Maharaj, mm. and Sukhdev Goswami, yes. and then Prabhupada had his disciples early young age. Right? Mm -hmm. But they were very fortunate to have a, a guru, right, where guru could guide them. Guru could, like Dhruv Maharaj, when he went to jungle, he didn't know what to do. So, okay. So when uh, Narad Muni came and he said, what you're doing here? And uh -huh. then he gave the mantra and then that's how he got elevated. Sure. Same thing with, uh, with Prahlad Maharaj when he was in the womb. Yes. Narad Muni came and gave. Yes. So how do we make sure that we, f number one, for children, especially like they're very vulnerable, how do we make sure that they, number one, they find the right guru, 
because uh, nowadays like uh, everything is there yeah. right yeah and then how do we make sure that they continue on that path uh-huh so can you please help us understand yeah the first thing is to understand that you can't make them do anything do you understand that yeah yes <laughs> yes i understand but still like as a as a parent uh, you have to yeah make sure that uh, because we are also the gurus right for them first gurus so yes yeah. um there is the external qualification of being their guru and then there's the internal qualification of being their guru so in that i i referenced it earlier the bhakti siddhanta describing the dikes and dams of the institution but there's also the stereotyped idea of what it means to be a good krishna conscious parent and then there's the parent that your child needs you to be so that they can become krishna conscious and the two are not necessarily the same so one i mean this is a very long conversation which takes a very it, it should be had i should talk to you about your children not about the idea of making children in general krishna conscious the conversation is ha- is is most fruitful for everyone speaking about your particular family dynamic and the spiritual dynamic that you've brought in already and where you you would like all that to go that's where the conversation is really to be had for the sake of the format though i can say that there's the principle and then there's the practice and the tendency when we're materially conditioned is to focus just on the practice right so that's the the reason for instance that the discussion around dhotis and and khakis is so intense why so many devotees are so invested in that conversation about what you wear and whether that makes you a devotee or not is because again most devotees are coming from a very shallow place and they don't have the internal infrastructure to be able to understand who is a who's actually a qualified devotee and who's not so that external demonstration is really helpful for them and they depend on that and if that's not there then they have really no other way to understand who's practicing krishna conscious and who's not you don't you're not wearing the jersey so i don't know if you're on my team so the parents have a responsibility to know their children as much as they have a responsibility to help their children know krishna and when you've really taken on that responsibility of knowing who your child is because they're not your child sovereign right they were it's not tabula rasa where they've come to you as a blank slate they they have lifetimes of samskar and enough samskar that has landed them in a devotee family so it, have you listened first shravanam then kirtanam have you understood who your child is so that you can help your child understand who krishna is that's the question that's the principle and then the practices follow naturally my child will enjoy music my child will enjoy playing sports and games my child will enjoy doing uh, artistic things making jewelry for the deities etc etc we had a whole list of different things yesterday that the the children could enjoy doing together and it's very variegated and naturally some of them will be attracted to one more than the other do you know which ones your child will be attracted to and do you know why and where that comes from in child inside your child's persona or do you have this kind of stereotyped idea this is what it looks like for a child to be krishna conscious this is what i have to do to make sure that they get there that's where we get into trouble so when we preach we when we preach to ourselves the process is shravanam kirtanam when we preach to others the process should also be shravanam kirtanam but it's usually just kirtanam 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 
We are so eager to tell others what we know and how we know it and why we know it and why they should agree with what we know. Rather than first taking the time to hear from them what their relationship with Krishna is that they already have. Yayatamam prapadyante. Everyone is following Krishna's path in all respects. Vartmanu vartante, right? Prabhupada says the first line of that purport, everyone is looking for Krishna in different aspects of his manifestation. So there's no question of your children having a relationship with Krishna. They already have a relationship with Krishna. By Krishna's mercy, they've taken an, such an auspicious birth into an environment where that relationship should be clearly cultivated and supported in a very natural, nurturing way. But because of our own society's immaturity, we, we actually wind up overwatering or overlighting or whatever you want to say to that, that precious bhakti ladabija. So shravanam then kirtanam. Spend more time hearing your children's idea of what they think Krishna consciousness looks like and means for themselves. And then as a parent, you'll be much more equipped and capable to support the growth of their bhakti lada, which is already there. Not that it, you're the source of it, but that you have now been asked by Krishna to be the curator or the cultivator of it, at least in this lifetime. Does that help, Prabhu? Yes, thank you, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Um, one more comment or question, if there is one. Otherwise, we'll, okay, yes. She felt pressured to chant some rounds. Okay. And uh, she was disgusted. <laughs> I'm going to be very frank. Yeah. She's here, you'll see her. Vishaka, my second one. Uh, had no taste, and uh, she was forced, and she was she did it very you know with such pressure, uh. and she was no joke. She was chanting four rounds in five minutes, and we know that is like <laughs> <laughs> so. And I asked her, I said, that's how long it would take to roll the beads. <laughs> I said, I did four rounds. I said, in five minutes, honey, that's not possible. So I said, stop. Hmm. I ju I just told her to stop, and I learned that she had no taste. Hmm. And one time she asked me, why do we have to chant when we can just go to the temple and do that and do whatever? I said, then do that. Don't uh, chant. Uh. I said, just stop the chanting. Hmm. And I think three, four years down the road, uh, when we had um, some um, weekend festival or summer or something, when we were living in Gitanagri a few years ago, and uh, she just planted one of her friends to get up in the morning and go for Mangalarti and chanted 16 rounds on her own. And I, the point that I wanted to share was, like you said, is I just started giving um, parenting workshops two, three years ago, and I still do that, that I think we fail to listen. Yes, always. <laughs> to our children. And everyone else. <laughs> and we want them to do you have to fulfill this many rounds, this many, you know, uh, uh, criteria and requirements. That's and, right. And I think that's what we're killing our kids. Because our material identity, which we all still have for the most part, depends on everyone around us fulfilling some material requirement, especially our children and our family members. So we have this checklist that we need them to be so that we can feel like we exist. And when they don't meet that checklist, then it it threatens my sense of self. And then as a parent, I feel entitled to have a child affirm my sense of self and I get very angry and upset and I force them and I make them and I scream at them if they don't and I punish them. And just to keep peace and accord in their own life, they'll do it 
until they leave. <laughs> and as soon as they can get away from you, then they stop doing it. And they figure out something else to do which feels good to them. At this point, I wanted to um, bring a point to attention. Anyway, if we just leave them on their own, we don't say anything, still, you know, you, you don't know what's the outcome anyway. I mean, they are observing at all times how parents are living. That's right. What they speak. Yes. But still, from our side, <clears throat> other than offering them prasadam and living by our talk, you know, I think at times we have to like little bit, we have to encourage them in some way. I mean, absolutely, I mean... Do you outside, take it that I'm not telling them? Outside Krishna consciousness also, otherwise in material life also, that, that is being done. So children get some direction, they develop some interest. Mm -hmm. Something has to come. It may not be a force or pushing. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not advocating neutrality towards your children. I'm advocating. In general, you know, whoever we are dealing with. Yes, I, I'm advocating a personal approach. Yeah, personal approach. Being people, that's what I'm advocating, and treating our children as people, and not as our our children, holding the position of my progeny, and my progeny <laughs> has to behave in this way, and if they don't, then they're wrong, because that makes me wrong that my child isn't behaving in this way. That's what I'm speaking against. And that's largely the mentality that we see. Not only, again, this is not unique to our society. This is parents. <laughs> this is how mundane material parents think. And because we're not very advanced ourselves, this is often how we approach our relationships with each other, including our children. So to get out of that and come to the level of being people with each other, including our children, because they are in fact people, that's what will actually bring out of them their natural aptitude for serving Krishna and make clear for us how we can support that, how we can actually encourage that. Okay. Grantaraj Sriman Bhagavatam Ki Jai. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Shri Shri Ki Jai.